It's tax cuts and reform, but I always mention tax cuts first because that's what people like to hear. At the heart of the fight, whether middle-class taxpayers will actually see relief in the bill. Taking money away from the middle class and working people's health care. The tax plan would add a trillion dollars to the deficit. So they can do tax cuts for the rich. It is a massive corporate tax break. But, you know, we're all glad, I guess, that our private jet exemption will be maintained and we'll be fine with that. This is Freak Out and Carry On. I'm Ron Suskind. And I'm Heather Cox Richardson. Okay, Heather, let's talk taxes. The tax bill, a monster, the Republicans' last chance to achieve anything this year. Donald Trump feels that clock ticking, and they're very close. Versions have passed in the House and the Senate. Now they just have to reconcile the bill. They're going to reconciliation now, and then there'll be another vote after all. This is, as our president would say, bigly or huge, a sweeping change to our tax policy, the biggest since Ronald Reagan in the 1980s. And Trump is hoping to sign it into law before New Year's Day. We'll get the details of this bill laid out today by Jim Tankersley from The New York Times. And later, Heather, you'll take a listener's question about history, which is neat. But first, I want to talk about the path that leads us to this moment. Uh, this tax bill is seen by many as an abomination, as a refutation, in a way, of so much that seemed to define that great populist surge on both the left and the right during this election. I mean, leading up to this moment, we have three decades of deepening and growing inequality. In some ways, the issue that defines almost all the other issues. The average college graduate enters the workforce in this era, in this year, $34,000 in the red. At this moment, we're considering a bill that could increase the deficit by more than $1.4 trillion over a decade and maybe back to a trillion dollars if there's the growth metrics, the, the growth that some people are advertising for this bill. Much of those measures of growth over the years have not come true. The Joint Committee on Taxation says that under the Senate plan, the rich would get a tax cut while families earning $10,000 to $75,000 a year would actually get a tax increase, certainly an increase over 10 years as this bill unfolds. Think of that family, the real people, getting by on $75,000 a year. And now we're supposed to believe they need to pay more in taxes while Ivanka Trump should inherit more money, limitless amounts under the House bill, up to $22 million exempted under the Senate bill. Heather, you have studied history, bringing us up not just over the last 20 or 30 years, but over a, a century or two. What is your take as to what takes us to this moment and what now is unfolding? I cannot emphasize how important this tax bill is. And it's worth pointing out that this is actually what I studied. This is what I started studying my career doing is tax policy because I'm that kind of an exciting person. But but what I was interested in was not whether or not things were going to be taxed at 2% or you know 2.5%. I was interested in what tax policy says about who should bear the burdens of society. And what this law does is it repeals the New Deal. We get rid of the New Deal concept of government, that the government has a responsibility to do what is best for everybody, to try and promote 
economic equality and economic opportunity across the board, and it replaces it with a new ideology, or rather quite an old ideology, that says the best way to make a healthy society is to make sure people at the very top have control of the money, the political system, the judicial system, and thereby the culture and the society, because they are the ones who truly understand how best to advance a society. It's a revolution that's been coming a long time. The Republicans have made no secret of the fact this has been their goal, get the government out of regulations and get it out of any kind of social welfare legislation. That has been a primary goal of the Republican Party since Ronald Reagan took office in the 1980s. But to see it happen here and to see this grab bag bill, especially the one coming out of the Senate, that tries to reverse everything that is the norm for virtually every American alive right now is simply breathtaking. That's my take on it. Well, um, as uh, I try to restore my breath, let's welcome our guest this week. Jim Tankersley is the tax and economics reporter for the New York Times, has been all over this bill and will take us through it bit by bit, step by step. Jim, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. All right, Jim. Uh, walk us through the main points of this Senate bill. And briefly, how is it different from the House bill? So do, a, as they say, a presidential brief here. Compare and contrast House versus Senate. What do we got? Let's start with the stuff they have in common. They're both big corporate tax cuts. They take the corporate tax uh, from 35% at the top down to 20%. That's the big growth provision in this that everybody uh, in, in the Republican side is really focused on. They're also both uh, individual income tax cuts, including they double the standard deduction for individuals and they lower rates kind of across the board. Those are the big similarities. There are huge differences. But uh, overall, what you have are two very different bills with the same goal, which is to dramatically cut taxes on business in hopes of provoking a lot of economic growth. And together, they blow a giant hole in the in the budget. Uh, $1.3 trillion, $1.2, $1.4. Are they pretty much similar there? They are. They both are what amounts to a $1.5 trillion, give or take a few billion dollars, tax cut. You're looking at somewhere north of a trillion dollars in additional deficits over 10 years. Yeah. And, also, yeah. this reminds me, sorry, one other huge important difference in the Senate bill is that unlike the House bill where all the cuts are permanent, in the Senate bill, the tax cuts for individuals are temporary. The relief for corporations is permanent, but in order to stay inside that $1.5 trillion limit, which is important for how do they, they want to pass the bill, the Senate has to set it so that the individual tax cuts all expire at the end of 2025. Yeah, yeah, which is crucial here. It's sort of yeah. a lot now, but it's going to fade and erode for individuals, not for the corporations. Right. Um, so, you know, right now the debate is, and we'll get into the specifics in a minute, but at the top line, the question is, is this good for the wide middle, for the middle class, the beleaguered middle class, or is it significantly an offering, a giveaway? in which proceeds of this many-sided, many-pronged tax change mostly accrues to the top 1%. What's the latest or best number being bandied around about that? In, In the first few years of the bill, the vast preponderance of the benefits go to the wealthy. That's true in the, at the end, too. But So it's always true that the wealthy, who, in fairness, pay the bulk of taxes in the United States, get the most tax relief, but not just in dollar figures, as a percent of their overall, of their income. Their incomes go up by more than the people below them. 
for most people in the middle class, they get a tax cut. They're, they're going to get higher incomes next year based on what's in both the House and the Senate bills, but not for everybody in the middle class. You still have a few million families, and the Senate bill is a little smaller of a number than the House bill, but you millions of families will see a tax increase in the middle class and, in the, and then more in the upper middle class because both bills get rid of some deductions, popular deductions, and can end up raising taxes because of it. But Jim, how much of this is classic Republican tax policy, the kind of stuff we've been seeing since Ronald Reagan? And how much of it is new, new in this era of Donald Trump? Now, I do think this is a good point that you bring up. And and I'm going to put a little bit of a twist on it. There is a difference between the supply side economics of Ronald Reagan and the supply side economics of Donald Trump. The lens you're talking about, I think there's a lot in here that punishes areas that didn't vote for Donald Trump, whether that's intended or not. The limitation of the deduction of state and local taxes really hurts high tax blue states, big urban areas that did not, by and large, vote for Donald Trump. Well, Stephen Moore, Um, who's a conservative economist who advised the Trump campaign, actually said in Bloomberg, quote, it's death to Democrats, unquote. Right. I think Steve's being a bit hyperbolic. I don't think any Democrats are going to die from losing their state and local tax deduction. But I think he's he is absolutely reflecting what is in the bill in the sense that there are things like there's a tax on some some university endowments, for example, that appears very much targeted at the Ivy League, which is a you know a, a bastion of liberalism. The Republicans would tell you now. So there are those provisions, and they're and they're real and they're important. And I do think that that reflects a bit more of the kind of red versus blue wars of our era. But I think the bigger and more important difference with Reagan's supply sideism is that this this bill is really a bet not on giving money directly to rich people, but on giving money to business, which will then give money to rich people. It's more of a bank shot supply side economics. And the idea is Trump's been promising this huge middle class tax cut. This is not a huge middle class tax cut. The, the people in the middle class getting tax cuts are getting moderate tax cuts. But this is what they are promising is that there will be some huge wage increases because corporations will end up spending their windfalls from this on raising wages for workers. That is a different argument than we have heard from the Bush tax cuts, for example, which was, you know, let's cut let's cut the taxes on people at the top so that they'll spend more money. This is an argument that basically says let's give money to big corporations in hopes that they will reward workers with higher salaries. Well, so so here we're at a moment in which Donald Trump clearly rose with a big dollop of populism that Republicans tend not to have grabbed a hold of up to now. On the campaign, I called it the forgotten man and the forgotten woman. Well, you're not forgotten anymore, that I can tell you. At the heart of this, Jim, is this in any way a counterforce in terms of tax policy to this powerful and growing inequality in the country? Okay, so credible nonpartisan economists say that this is likely to increase the growth in the U.S. economy somewhat, though not as much as Republicans claim, and that it is likely to boost wages to some degree, although there's real disagreement. And again, the Trump administration has a much higher estimation of that boost than most independent economists I've talked to. But the reason, so the reason to be bullish on that possibility is that we are already really close to, or if if not at, what economists call full employment, which is like the time when unemployment rate is really low and workers do get some bargaining power back because companies are desperate to hire and they can't find anybody. And so you've got to raise wages to hire those people. And 
so there is this possibility that if you dump a big tax cut and a bunch more investment into that sort of already very hot labor market, then maybe you do get some really big wage boosts right away. There is also this sort of anecdotal and now increasingly empirical argument that, well, you're not going to dump the money into wages or even investment at all. You're just going to do a lot of dividends to shareholders and a lot of stock buybacks, and you'll just end up keeping more money up in the perpetuation of the inequality that has grown in America over the last 40 years. I hate to get all historical here, but of course, we did this already before. We did this in the 1890s and we did it in the 1920s. And we know in neither of those cases did it go particularly well, because what it did was rather than having wealth trickle down and have all wages rising in America doing better and better, what you got was a political party in both cases, then the Republicans saying, this is great, everybody's going to make a ton of money. And in fact, inequality got so extraordinary, we ended up having extreme political changes and and great instability in those eras. Is there any reason to think that this is not going to exacerbate inequality, especially since already they are talking about looking at what they call entitlement, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and rolling those back because of this new $1.4 trillion hole in the budget? Uh, I have not seen an analysis yet that suggests that this tax bill will make inequality better. I've seen a lot of analyses and talked to a lot of economists who think it will make it worse. And you can pretty easily see why that would be. It's going to give a lot of money to people who already have a lot of money. And so, you know, again, the argument that the the conservative economists make is that the inequality won't matter if you're raising living standards across the board. That if poor people in the middle class get big wage increases, they're not going to care if inequality goes up. Like inequality went up in the late 90s and people weren't that upset about it because everybody was getting a raise. But if it doesn't work out that way and we just see a rise in inequality, then exactly those political forces you were just mentioning, and, and you know, I think we all wish we could have been around to cover the tax debates of the 1890s. Um, but if, well, three if, of us anyway. <laughs> right, yes, right. Um, but I think, I think if you, you, you could see the same sort of political forces, and we're already seeing that. I mean, I think there are a lot of forces, economic and non-economic, that led to the rise of Donald Trump and his election as president, and I think he tapped very, very well into some frustration with inequality. Should Donald Trump be expecting a bite on the butt here uh, from uh, his core base? I mean, some of them are scratching their heads, it seems. It doesn't seem like there's a a huge amount of enthusiasm for this bill among the base. (laughs) On the other hand, like in in the polling we've we've looked at, it's it's less than you would expect. On the other hand, they have done a good job, uh, it, it appears in the polling, of at least getting Republicans to believe that the middle class will get a tax cut here. Uh, there were a couple of polls out this week that, that show just this dramatic difference, something like 90-some percent of, of Democrats think that it's going to favor the wealthy, and, and the majority of Republicans think it's going to favor the middle class, and that's really successful messaging by both parties amongst their base. Um, and I just think that then we'll see what reality turns out and how responsive people are to reality. Yeah, how how responsive people are to reality. Uh, we should have brought in a theoretical physicist or philosopher <laughs> as as somebody can, who yeah. as somebody who once put reality based community in a story I did in the New York Times. We are still uh, wrestling with definitions of reality. I'll tell you one version of reality, which has echoed forward across the decades. After 
after the large Bush tax cut, the second one in 2003, another one in 2001, remember, which was a big one, then the second one in 2003, an old rock-ribbed Republican named Paul O'Neill, the Treasury Secretary, said to Dick Cheney, who was really running the ship, so to speak, for that administration, he says, look, Dick, this is ridiculous. I mean, this is will blow a huge hole in the budget. Our grandchildren will really be able to pay it. And Cheney looked to O'Neill, who he'd known back since the Nixon days, says, look, Paul, we won the midterms, midterm elections of 2002, and Reagan proved deficits don't matter. We won the midterms. This is our due, i.e., we have political rewards to pay. We won, and we're going to pay them. And don't worry, Reagan-proof deficits don't matter because those big tax cuts did create enormous deficits, and it didn't seem to hurt Ronald Reagan at all politically. Are we in another round of that now, um, a good 15 years later? Well, I've, I would think that, you know, 2010, one of the things that those of us covering economic policy in 2010 discovered was the deficits really seemed to matter for a hot second. That the, the Tea Party movement in 2010, the anger at government spending levels, the, the big debt that had been caused by the Great Recession. And then in 2012, you, you really did have every Republican candidate ran much more on the idea of spending cuts than on the idea of tax cuts. It was fiscal responsibility was this big animating force in the presidential field. And Mitt Romney's tax plan was very different from the tax plan that just that just passed the Senate. But that has faded. Republicans are back to embracing either deficits or what would be non, um, I'm trying to think of the right way to put this, non-supported by the evidence thinking about how <laughs> tax cuts will pay for themselves to this to this degree. And uh, I mean, they, they, they are talking about doing spending cuts and spending cuts is the way to bring down debt, but they've clearly made a choice as a party that tax cuts are more important and then they'll worry about any resulting deficits as a second order concern. And that's back back to that Cheney mentality, um, much more so than what we saw for that brief moment um, in, in 2010 through 2012, when the party seemed more focused on deficits and, and spending levels than they were on tax cuts. Well, one of the reasons Dick Cheney hated that quote, which was in my book, Price of Loyalty, uh, in 2004, is because the Republicans never officially would speak in favor or in support of deficits. And that was Cheney doing that to O'Neill, and that quote has been hung around his neck for the years since. The question is now, are the Republicans officially saying deficits are okay, there's going to be a trillion-dollar hole will blow in the budget, and in fact, they may be valuable as a tool to force the changes in entitlements that we've been hoping for, trumpeting for years? I don't think that they – I mean, none of the lawmakers I've talked to or party strategists I've talked to have explicitly said – we're going to use big deficits to force spending changes. But what they, they say are going is, to. They are but going what they to. say instead is, is, is that spending changes are the only thing that will really solve the long-run debt problems. That's the, that's the new line. That you just can't do it through tax increases or even leaving taxes where they are. So if you have to do some debt finance tax cuts, which, by the way, we think will pay for themselves. We do, but they don't. We need to get the economy going again, and then let, we need to cut spending in a way that will bring debt under control. That's the new line. But overall, like this is the direction the party's been moving in. It wasn't very sexy to write about candidates' tax plans during the 2016 primaries, but I wrote about all of them, and 
they all looked like this on the Republican side. Many of them were bigger. The, the first Donald Trump tax plan was a $10 trillion tax cut, not $1.5 trillion over 10 years. And, and Rand Paul and Ted Cruz had tax cuts that were also just very, very large. Uh, even Jeb Bush's tax cut was very large. So let me tell you this, Jim. In fact, there were reporters at a similar bill in the 1890s. And I've read all the accounts in The New York Times. And what happened was when the Republicans pushed that bill through very unexpectedly by manipulating the rules, the Democrats started screaming at them and trying to yell and get the attention of the Speaker of the House and did everything they could to stop the bill from passing. And when it passed, the Republicans started cheering and the Democrats looked across the aisle and they said, you're cheering today, but in November, you'll mourn. And in the November uh, 1890 elections, the Republicans got shellacked. They lost utter control of both the House and the Senate, which at the time everybody thought would be impossible to achieve. Well, I, I believe that, I mean, again, polling is, um, you should never put too much faith in just one poll, but I, I believe there was a poll just uh, this week that showed after being essentially tied on the issue in August, Democrats had opened an eight-point lead over Republicans on the issue of taxes, which is just not what you expect. Usually Democrats do much better on health care and other issues that are more what their base cares more about, and Republicans do better on taxes. But if that number holds... It's hard to see how Republicans use the tax bill as anything but a base motivation strategy in the 2018 midterms. If if something goes wrong and the economy tanks or even just starts slipping, then boy, you have to think that there there could be a free fall for those numbers and with it, Republican fortunes in the midterms. And yeah, I mean, I think Democrats certainly believe that they have a, a salient issue here with voters. Well, between the, uh, now and that election day, Jim, I'm sure we'll talk many times. I hope so. Yeah, and it's been fun. Yeah, uh, Jim Tankersley is the tax and economics reporter for the New York Times. Uh, Jim, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Heather, stand by. We'll be right back to answer a history question from a listener. All right, we're back. Uh, This week, we tried something new. We asked listeners on social media what questions on politics and history they had for Heather, our favorite historian in residence. If you have a question, tweet us at Freak Out and Carry On or tell us on Facebook, and maybe we'll answer it on a future show. This week, that's what we're going to do. The question is from Troy Plummer via Facebook, and he asked, on the topic of progressivism, why did the Republicans and Democratic Party switch places between Lincoln's era in the 1860s and Johnson, that's Lyndon Johnson's era, 100 years later? Heather? Okay, I love this question, Troy. And of course, I would love to answer it in about a thousand pages. But the simple answer to that question, the question the way you phrased it, although I will expand on it later, is race. The Republican Party starts with Abraham Lincoln defending equality of opportunity. So quickly, the Republican Party becomes the party that defends the rights of African Americans. And it stays that party until Eisenhower, who continues that tradition because, not only because of the the larger principles of the Republican Party, but also, of course, because he had been the leader of black soldiers in World War II and really cared about black rights and about the principles of America that everybody should have equality of opportunity. 
That takes us into the 1950s. You've got that long history there. But in the 1950s, after World War II, you've got extraordinary upheaval in American society. And one of the things that happens is a real push for black rights. And Eisenhower gets behind that. He's the president who backs a Supreme Court justice who passes the desegregation law, the, the Supreme Court decision that desegregates American schools. And Eisenhower puts the troops behind that. He actually sends troops into Arkansas to defend the rights of African Americans to be in public schools schools in Little Rock, Arkansas. And Eisenhower loved that message going out to the world, mind you. He lived in the world about how important it is that America shows it's doing right by its African Americans. Well, he needed to do that in part because one of the key things that communist countries were saying was that America, this whole idea of liberty and freedom was a sham because look how they treated African Americans. And that was very much a part of communist propaganda in the 1950s and the 1960s. And he thought that was very important. So what happens is there's a number of people in the Republican Party who push back against this. They don't want black rights. They don't want the federal government to be involved in social welfare legislation. They also don't want them to be involved in business regulation. And they join together with Southern Democrats who've always been against black rights. And they start to say, if you will work with us, if the Southern Democrats will work together with these reactionary Republicans, that we will be able to push back against this. And in 1964, they do. That's what really fuels Barry Goldwater's campaign. And Barry Goldwater picks up not only his home state of Arizona in that election, but he picks up five deep southern states. And right there, the solid Democratic South gets broken, and Democrats who hate black rights start to work with Republicans. Richard Nixon picks that up in 1968 with what everybody calls a southern strategy, but basically it was a quiet assurance to Southerners that he would not push federal desegregation. And meanwhile, since Lyndon Johnson in 1964, the Democrats are on the other side of this equation, pushing forward mightily civil rights, voting rights, and rights for African Americans. So so by the time you get to Nixon and after, the parties have switched. Heather, this has uh, been enlightening as always. It's always a pleasure to chat, Ron. This is Freak Out and Carry On. I'm Ron Suskind. Thanks for joining us. If you haven't already, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. It helps others find the show. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at FreakOutCarryOn. Visit our website at WBUR.org slash FreakOut. Our email address is FreakOutAndCarryOn at WBUR.org. Our show is produced by WBUR in Boston. We're produced and edited by Catherine Brewer. Our technical director is Matt Reed. Our executive producer is Iris Adler. Music for the podcast, courtesy of APM. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the participants and do not in any way reflect the views of WBUR management or its employees.